We're in the Gospel of John. We will be in the Gospel of John for the next seven weeks. John is, um, you know, it, it's difficult to say something is the greatest in the Bible because all of God's word is breathed out of his spirit. Uh, but John's the best. It is, it's, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels because they give a synopsis of the life of Christ. What I mean is their structure bows to the formula of sequence. Jesus did this, and then he did this, and then he did this, and then he did this. And it's through the sequence of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John that they show the crescendo of his life to the cross, and then the brilliant resurrection. That's the crescendo to the crescendo, right? It's, it's, it's through a synopsis that they do that. John is not a synoptic. John, uh, the Gospel of John was written sometime later, decades, we believe, after the earlier Gospels. It's quite possible that the Gospel writer had all of uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke sitting in front of him, even as he was contemplating John. And the book itself has about it a, a lofty poetry to its structure that is that just makes it exquisite. It is exquisite. And it's the book you give to a non-believer because uh, John has a way of reaching the non-believing heart. And it's, it's a book that as a believer... Um, I used to tell a friend, I was scared to preach out of John. It's taken me seven years because it is so deep and so marvelous and so exquisite. It has a high, a lofty contemplation of things. And one of the ways John does this is um, he, he, instead of using sequence as what he bows to, he rather step backs and says, what do I want to say about the Christ? And so his structure is structured around symbols. So in the Gospel of John, you have seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the gate. I am the shepherd. I am the life. I am the light of men. I am the way. He's seven, these I am statements that he's put in that Christ has said somewhere in his ministry, he carefully arranges the architecture of the book to make you encounter Christ in those seven ways. And he does the same thing with signs. John puts in seven of uh, the miracles of Christ. He never calls them miracles. Never once does he call them miracles. He calls them signs. Because he doesn't want, it's not his goal to make you, uh, put you in awe over the miracle. It's his goal that the miracle would tell you something about the person of Jesus. It would be a sign to who Jesus really is. And so for the next seven weeks, that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be spending time understanding who Jesus is through his, these seven signs in the Gospel of John. This is how, towards the very end of the book, this is what John writes. This is John 20, 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So for us, well, seven weeks we'll be looking at seven signs, seven opportunities to know Christ, know him better, believe and re-believe 
who he is for us. Let's pray, Lord. You are our gift given by the Father. Laid down out of your own will, Lord. You gave yourself. You poured yourself out so that we might have life. And Lord, as we turn to your word, as we mine your scripture, Lord, help us to find you. The true you, Lord. Not not just the you on the page, but the you beneath the page, Lord. Uh, The very person of Jesus Christ who wants to be found by all men. Lord, you are the Father's gift to all of creation. Bless us now as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to read read John uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. This is the first sign in the Gospel of John. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And Jesus said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Okay. I want to walk through and uh, in, uh, kind of examine what happens in its own time. And I want to start with the setting the setting of, of this sign. And the setting is a wedding. It says on the third day there was a wedding. Now the third day is, uh, is, is not significant so much to this particular narrative. Uh, what John has been doing, if you followed from John chapter 1, is from the moment Jesus comes out of the wilderness, so it appears, and begins his ministry, John starts kind of ticking off the days. So it's on this day, and then the next day, and then the next day, and then the next day. And just before this wedding, he meets, calls Philip and Nathaniel. And right now he's saying, 
on the third day since that point. So that, just to give you a better understanding of where that's coming from. But there's a wedding, and the wedding is in the town of Cana, which is not far from Nazareth. We don't know exactly where. There's a few places, but it's within 10 miles of Nazareth. And the scriptures say that the mother of Jesus was there, and that Jesus and his disciples were invitees. They were guests of the wedding. And I think a reasonable way to to imagine this is that this wedding very likely was a close friend of the family or a distant relative of the family. Because we see later that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is involved uh, as an attendant in the wedding. When you read, you end up finding that when they run out of wine, that the mother of Jesus feels uh, in some way responsible to care for that problem. The way it would work back in the day is that it was actually the groom's side of the family that was responsible for putting on the celebration. It was a big celebration. Sometimes it would last multiple days. There would be many guests that invited, but there were even parts of a marriage celebration that extended to the village or the town. They would parade through the town. They would dress the bride and groom up as a king and queen and treat them like royalty. It was a big celebration. And the groom was responsible for the caring of that. So you might think here that uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is either a very close friend of some family in the groom or a relative, an aunt, to the groom. All of the legends of Scripture outside of the word, you know, people are desperate to figure out who's, who is this wedding. They even, some even wonder, is it John himself? Is it his wedding? Um, but that, that would be, a, a, if you thought, I think you'd have a good picture in your mind if you thought of a good down-home, I, I want to say down-home southern wedding, just simple where the reception, where your Aunt Sally is helping with the reception. And instead of just outsourcing it all, the family's caring for it. That's kind of, I think, the picture. And in this picture, we see this this idea that Jesus is a guest. He is invited to the wedding, and he comes. And that's a fact. I mean, that's a detail in the story, but it continually lands to me um, this week, just thinking of the scriptures. I thought of all the different ways sometimes we view Christ uh, in a way that is not quite accurate. I think uh, some of us in our faith can have kind of a cloudy day faith. We can be so aware of sin in the sin in our lives, that we're always like the repentant monk. The faith is kind of a repentance machine. And we're, we're very glad that Jesus uh, saved us from our sins, and we're very, very thankful for the mercy of the Lord. But there can be in our faith, some of you may have this kind of a, I'm a sinner perspective. And I think there are others, and uh, especially uh, maybe people who are attracted to the things of God but not familiar with the Word of God, is they can have in their minds this idea that God is in somehow aloof from their issues of life, separated, distant, far above, uninterested, this sort of thing. And both of those ideas, just the fact that Jesus is at this wedding, it challenges it, it shatters it, I feel. 
This idea that Jesus is having fun at a wedding of a friend or of a cousin. He's sitting at table 19, probably by the loudspeaker, <laughs> right? Joking, just like you joke. I, have, I just have this sense that there's, there's nothing in the account that says that Jesus went to this wedding and stole the wedding for the purpose of ministry or that there was anything happening other than him simply being a guest. And, and I just, I want to say this to you, especially if there's someone here who has, it's been a long time since you thought God would come to your house. Jesus would come to your house. He would come to your wedding. That's in his character. Like if we are reading this so that we might know that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Savior, and we might have life, you should know he really, really would sit down at your table. And he would smile. He wouldn't sit down at your table and say, we got to talk. You'd probably give him a chance. But he would sit down at your table to be your friend. There is such a friendship in Christ. And it shows up all over the Gospels, which allows us to see moments like this and know that Jesus, the friend, was present at this wedding. Just the smiling, kind friendship of Christ. Is it not he who says to his disciples, from now on, I want you to call me friend? He says that in the Gospel of John, at the Last Supper, he says, no more master, call me friend. And he says, in fact, I'm, because I came, I'm placing you, I'm rearranging your relationship with God so that you can call him dad. That's what he does. I mean, do you think of Jesus as the kind of person who would come to your house in friendship? It's not the point of this sign, but it's in this sign that if we're going to see this and know the Lord better, we should see this, this kind of Christ. Christ is just, he's a guest having fun at a wedding. And then the problem hits. And the problem is they've run out of wine. That's what the mother of Jesus comes to them. He, he, she says to him, they've run out of wine. Now, this is, means more to them than it does to us in the sense that uh, the laws and lines of hospitality in the ancient Near East were very clearly defined, much more clearly than they are in the West, even today. And so there were things that were understood. There was a code of hospitality that carried quite a bit of cultural weight with it. And one of these ideas was the groom's family was responsible to celebrate the marriage in a way fitting of the bride and groom. And so to fall short in a way like this could, would be seen by, perceived as shameful, potentially by others. In fact, outside of scripture, in other areas, we have found and uncovered lawsuits in the ancient Near East of the bride's family suing the groom's family because the bride was not well respected in the ceremony. Just to give you a sense. Now, I'm not saying that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is worried that the lawsuit is about to be levied down, but I'm saying this is a legitimate issue, is, is what I'm saying. Is, is for us, this might be, oh, that's a bummer. The bar's closed. But in, in this account, there's more being said. There's more that's being conveyed. This is a way of saying, uh, we are about to make the groom's family look really, really bad. That's the problem. 
that's the problem in the story, but the response of Jesus and Mary is kind of a problem for us to understand because it's, I, I, find, I find this challenging. Um, first of all, this is the first miracle of the entire Gospel of John. He's going to give signs and he's going to start off with turning water to wine at a wedding. That itself is unexpected, I think. But then you, when you see the discourse between Jesus and his mother, uh, it's not like it gets easier all of a sudden. Just She says they have no wine. And then in verse 4, he says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? And then he says, My hour has not yet come. And then she says to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. And he does it. And you're like, I thought he said no. <laughs> and I thought he said no again. So let's, I, we're going to spend most of our time in this exchange because actually when you pick this exchange apart, this discourse apart, uh, it crumbles away. Your ability to appreciate it falls apart if you just deal with words all by themselves. Or if you say, this is what she means when she said this, and this is what he means when he said this. If you just take those individual lines, they, they cannot support themselves. They actually mislead you by themselves. What we need to do is, is look at a line uh, or a phrase or statement and then step back and say, how does that make sense with what happened? And then go back and look and go, how does that make sense with what was said on either side of it? So just to start, this idea of woman. For us in our English, that sound, in the vulgar language, that sounds kind of rude. Chauvinistic, maybe. As though he's saying, lady, this ain't any of my business. That's there. That's not actually what's present in the language. We don't have an English equivalent for, for, uh, to convey the meaning that is conveyed here in woman. It's actually a very respectful term. It would be in the French, madame. Or if we were like in England, lady. It would be very respectful, very caring, um, but it is important to note that it is not mom. Right? Jesus does not say mom, and that is important. Jesus is no longer the son beneath the house of Joseph and Mary. He is now on ministry, on mission. He is now the Messiah on ministry. And when his mom comes to him with a what could be considered a family problem, he turns back to her and refers very respectfully, but he refers to her not as his mother, but as a woman. In, uh, in other words, I, the Lord, and this is being given to us, so the exchange happened among them, and it was real among them, but it's to be seen for all eternity by God's people. It's important for us to realize that whatever Jesus does here, the miracle did not happen because the son is a mama's boy who was doing what his mommy wanted him to do. That is not what's taking place here. He doesn't say, Mom, come on. I'm a guest. I'm not working today. That's not what he's... This is fine lady. I mean, if you were the mother of Jesus... You would note that nuance, wouldn't you, moms? That's purposeful. 
And then he says these, these things. He says, first of all, what does this have to do with me? Which is a hard, it's a hard sentence to translate out of the Greek anyway, but we resolve here with what does this have to do with me? And he has this sentence, my hour has not yet come. And both of those would incline us to think that, that he's inclined not to help in the situation. But if we keep it next to what his mother says, she doesn't have that perspective. In fact, verse 5 doesn't say, but his mother said to his, the servants, as though she saw that as an argument. It doesn't say, despite that, however, the mother of Jesus turned to the servants. It doesn't have anything that would incline us to think that the mother, that, that the mother of Jesus received from that, I'm not going to do it. And so you almost have to have I mean, the mother has perfect confidence. By the way, she is, this is, by the way, where the Catholic tradition looks to Mary as a great intercessor because this is a model of intercession in the scriptures. Which, okay, we can choose not to worship Mary and admire her pattern here for a second, right? She comes to the Lord with a problem, gives the problem to the Lord, and she walks away. How, she doesn't tell the Lord how to do it. She doesn't tell the Lord, look, here's the problem and here's how you need to fix it. That's how we pray, right? We are very familiar with that. Lord, we, at the best, we sometimes give him a multiple choice of which all of the above is always there, right? You can do everything for me if you really want. She doesn't do that. She says, here's, here's the problem. I don't even need to be around. You'll fix it. That's her spirit in this. So whatever Jesus says, what does this have to do with me and my hour has not yet come? The tone and the tone of the discourse or the, the silent nonverbal exchange clearly has conveyed to Mary that it's taken care of. So what does it mean then? What does this have to do with me? I don't have a great way of saying this, so um, here's my mediocre way of saying it. Sometimes, sometimes things are said, especially in the Bible, sometimes the Lord will say or behave in a certain way that appears for a moment to be contrary to what we would expect so as to demonstrate something deeper about his person. I think of the example where there's the Samaritan woman who wants healing and he says, listen, I, I didn't come to the Samaritans, I came to the Jews. Whew. That's harsh. And then the Samaritan woman goes, yeah, but even the dog gets the crumbs from the master's table. And he goes, now that's good. <laughs> and it's almost as though that example, what Jesus did with his words is he he created a scenario that drew us more deeply into how we ought to approach him. I mean, that says, that says to me, you don't go to the Lord once. Sometimes if, it, if you're desperate, you go and you go and you go and you go because eventually the Lord's gonna go, that, that's good. Man, he is persistent. I think the same thing is happening here. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Let's just ask from an earthly perspective. He's a guest at a wedding. What does this have to do with him? Nothing. 
nothing. This is why I think the word is very clear to say he didn't do this because she's his mom. The wedding does not deserve what Jesus is about to do. And I think that Jesus is saying this right up front to say, listen, I am not bound to solve the problems of the people I meet. Actually, I'm not responsible for the problems of people. I mean, let's just let's, let's step deeper into the conversation. This, we could say, we look at all, let's step into our own lives, all the problems in our own life, right, that we bring to the Lord. Sometimes people, in fact, go to the Lord as though the Lord had better fix it. Or if the Lord doesn't, they have this season, this chilled season, where the Lord has to see the north face of, the, of them, where they're, they're angry at the Lord because they're blaming God for not doing what they, they thought he's responsible for, to which we need, theologically, we need to remind ourselves, what does the brokenness of this world have to do with Jesus? He made a perfect world. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Everything that was made was made through him. That's how John started this book a page ago. And so is there is this sense that all that's wrong in our lives, all that's wrong that we can see, that we can understand from mosquitoes to tsunamis to sickness to divorce to vice and anger and sin and Satan, all of those things, Jesus is not responsible for those problems so that when he acts, because that's what we're stuck with, is, but he still did it, didn't he? You hear the statement and you go, but he did it. This is grace. This is the definition of grace. God's people should know that he sees your problems. They are not actually his problems. But he has chosen to make it his business. That's the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is he would be your friend and he would make your trouble his business. He has made your trouble his business. He's not responsible for it. He didn't make it. He is Lord over it. And yet, when we come to him, he does it. I think that's the first side of the statement. That first statement of Christ establishes this idea. Right. So if we're going to look into this account, if the mother of Jesus just went to Jesus and said, we're out of wine, and he said, Mom, I'll get to it. And then he did it. We would, have to, we would teach this very differently. That would be a very different sign of Jesus. We'd be stuck with Jesus honors his mother. Jesus is not honoring his mother here. He's listening to the intercession of a woman. And he's choosing to make the problem his business. And then there's the second idea. My hour has not yet come. In the Gospel of John, the phrase my hour or my time is is very important. What he's referring to here in a very distinct way is uh, his crucifixion. Any time in the Gospel that um, something's happening around him, right, the groundswell of, is he Messiah or, or he's going to do a miracle, whatever. 
on the way up towards his crucifixion, he'll, he'll step aside or disappear or stifle the conversation. And the writer will say, uh, either Jesus himself will say or the writer will say, because his hour has not yet come. His hour has not yet, this wasn't his time, that wasn't his time, that wasn't his time. It gets to the Last Supper, the time, the last evening that Christ has, and he begins to say things like, my hour has now come. This, it's for this hour that I came. I came for this hour that I might be glorified and glorify the Lord through me. He begins to say those things in the, uh, John 12 and John 13 and John 17. Those are the way that my hour begins to refer to back th- over there around the crucifixion. So if we look here, we'd say that at some level he's saying to the woman, this is not why I came. This problem is not why I came. So I'm not responsible for this problem, and this problem is not why I came. It was, I think many people forget the real reason Jesus has come and continually intercede to him for things that he didn't really come about. What I mean to say is, when, if, when you pray, just think of your own prayer life. I mean, prayer life is the best exposition of this. In your own prayer life, do you go to Jesus around the cross and what he's done most often? Is that your prayer life? Or is your prayer life around your need and your problems? I think our natural tendency is to do this, that our problems in life drive us to talk to the Lord more than the reality of what he's done to us on the cross. And we go here, and we're mindful of here, but we're, ten- we're tempted and tend to go for our problems. And I think in this case, this is a way he's saying, look, this is not why I came. If, if I'm about to change water into wine and solve the wedding and make the wedding better than it ever would have been, in fact, reinvent the custom of the wedding, like outshine the bride's family with such a like, coolness. If I'm about to do that, I want you to know that's not really what I'm about. Because God's people will very quickly, you know, like a dog, I do... I do one good thing for my dog, and all of them, it's, it's a habit. I can see it in my eyes of my dog. He's like, we always do this. What do you mean? You know, we remember that one time? This is, this is a habit. We're like that, right? And you try to train the dog, and you know, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. But you, you throw them a snack, and they got, man, they got that wired. Yeah, we're like that. We're just like that. God does something for us, and you're like, God will do something for me again. You know, like a snack, like he's tossing his treats. God, that's not the Lord. The Lord is the son of the almighty God who came here to be your friend, would have come into your house and to your wedding to make your problems his problems so that you might know him and find life. That's why he came. And along the way, he sees our brokenness, he sees our problems, and he says, fix that. I'll fix that. You know how often, if you read the Gospels, how often Jesus heals and then says to the person healed, don't tell anybody. Keep it on the down low. Because it's going to get in the way of my ministry, is what he's saying. Because the second everybody hears that you were healed, guess what's going to happen? It's going to be this huge line out the door of sick people. 
which is not why I came, and will distract ultimately from my mission. And so I think what the Lord is saying to the woman on the way to this miracle is, let not, let me say it for us, let not the people of the ages look at this account and think that I'm responsible for everything that's wrong because I'm not. I have a heart of mercy and they should know that. And let people not think for all the ages to come that this is what Jesus is about, is about fixing your visible, material, relational problems. Because that's not what I have done. I have come to do something so much better. Now I'll do it. And he does it. And when he does it, by the way, in the doing of it, you can imagine if the Lord is very careful to say, this is not why I've come, then we shouldn't be surprised when we actually see the sign if the sign would point to why he came. And this is what we see. Look at verse six. Now there were six stone jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. 20 or 30, so six times 30. I don't know what to do there. You could do that. You got your smartphone. It's a lot of water. What this is, the Jewish rite of purification stems from the notion, stems from the Jewish ritual and awareness of uncleanliness. So the Lord, through the law of Moses, uh, was, had been, done a very good job of establishing in the mindset of the people, if I do not care for my life, I am unclean, which is a good starting point. And so tradition was, whenever you would come into the home with any kind of formality, whenever you'd come into the home, a Jewish home, you would begin by washing your feet. You would have your feet washed. They would draw water from these, these jars, big jars. That's what you do. Then when you would sit down for dinner, you know what you'd do? You'd wash your hands. And you'd typically wash it like in a, a very, very washy way, not just water on, not like that. But you would you'd pour water uh, down your hands like a doctor, right? And then they would, do it, they would do it like up, and then they would do it down. That was just the, the custom. In a formal meal, you wouldn't do that just for dinner. You would do that between courses of the meal. Appetizer comes out, wash. Main course comes out, wash. I'm clearly not classy because I can only think of a main course. Dessert, <laughs> wash. That's how formal we get in our house. I'm glad I fit in an appetizer. But they would wash even through the courses of the meal just to get an impression of how in the mindset of the Hebrew family was this notion of purify yourself, purify yourself, purify yourself, purify yourself. So here's a big party, bunch of people. They have six of these huge gallons that they've used to wash out. So now they're empty and Jesus says, fill up the jars that were once used to purify the outside and watch what I'm gonna do. I mean, isn't the miracle beautiful? The Lord is taking what they, what they used to do again and again and again to wash the outside of their life. And he says, I'm gonna pour in them something that is indescribably wonderful. The best. This is what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come to get rid of the old order where you or me, or anyone is constantly going before the Lord saying, 
I gotta wash myself again. We do this one time. Not every time we sin. God, Christ says, I'll do on the inside what you were always unable to do over and over on the outside of your life. This is why it's a sign. Jesus blesses the whole wedding. I mean, there's so many levels that we, should, we could, we could en- enjoy this account. In fact, I'm even tempted just to say, like, if your wedding is on the rocks, if you feel like there is no wine left in your marriage, I want to say, Jesus would come. He'd come to your marriage if you invited him. I'd say, even though he's not responsible for your problems, he'd be there. And in Christ, I'm, I, I'm encouraged in my heart to say that for, for, for all things, the best is yet to come. That on the other side, Christ can do a good thing. But that is not why he came. He came so that we would have life and have it to the fullest. There is this overflowing nation of that pa- nature of that passage that is this sense of how the Lord showers his abundant love on us like, like these 300, hundreds of gallons of wine, right? Hundreds of gallons just given to the people. This is what it says in verse 11. This is an interesting statement. We'll close with it. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him. What are they doing following him? The faith is not something you believe in once. The faith is something that God tells you to believe in all the time. This is... This reminds me of just the kind way the Lord has with me and with so many of you, right? He introduces you to the faith and then he introduces you to the faith, right? And then he shows you the faith. And you know next week he's gonna show you the faith. And next year or next year, 10 years from now, you're gonna get to see what real believing looks like. And if you live long enough, you're gonna get to see the faith. And one day, one day, we will be in our wedding service with him. And we will believe. That's why he came. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I do just, I pray the blessing of the friendship of Christ on this room. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here who has been estranged from the Lord, they would feel the felicity of his grace. Lord, in the hearing of your word, we recognize that our problems are not actually your problem. But you've taken them on, Lord. You've taken them on yourself because you have grace. And we point to the Father as the one who sent you, Lord. There's such kind unity in the way you have treated us. So, Lord, we pray that when we see things like this in the scriptures or things like this in our own life, Lord, we would use them as signs to point to you, 
to say that the solving of the problem is not what Jesus is about, Lord. He is about the solving of my soul, pouring new wine into this old wineskin. Do a new thing with us, Lord, we pray, so that we might believe in Jesus' name. Amen.